You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 44. We've all been there. A brilliant idea, one that we know will change our team, department, or the whole organisation. But the question is, of course, how do we get other people to buy into it? My guest in this episode of the podcast is here to help. You might remember Simon Dowling from his time on the TV show, Thank God You're Here. Well, as it turns out, he's not just a stage performer, but also an accomplished commercial lawyer and leading thinker on creating collaborative teams and workplaces. In the conversation you're about to hear, Simon and I talk about what it takes to turn an idea into action, how you go about enrolling the enthusiastic support of the people around you to bring your idea to life. At the core of Simon's message is moving from decree to win me, the idea that leaders don't tell people what to do, they inspire and encourage them to want to take action. What Simon has hit on here, I think, is the difference between management and leadership. The difference between someone who leans on the power of the org chart to wield their influence and the person who finds a way to convince those around them that they and their ideas are worth following. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon Dowling. Simon Dowling, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you very much, David. Simon, it's nice to have you and it's especially nice to have you after my ginormous stuff up last week. I'm so sorry about that, mate. I've already apologized to you a thousand times, but I'll let our listeners in on the fact that I missed our date last week because of daylight saving. How embarrassing. You did. Well, look, it was only 24 hours before I'd forgotten that it was daylight savings down here, so I hadn't turned my clocks back anyway, forward anyway. So You would think I, uh, I'd be all over such an obvious problem, wouldn't you? Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll blame the government. Well, we're lucky to have you back. I'm glad you gave me a second chance, mate. I'm going to try and make it worth your while and worth the while of our, our listeners. You've just published a book, Work With Me. It's all about generating buy-in for your ideas. What a worthwhile topic. And I've got to say, it's a neat little book too. I really enjoyed reading it, mate. And I've got to say, there's a lot of expectation on you today because in your book, your personality just bursts through the pages. So I'm expecting you to be a fantastic fellow because that's how you come across in your book. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome feedback. Thanks, David. It's, uh, yeah, that's really lovely to hear. So great topic, how to generate buy-in for your ideas. And But before we get to that, I'm just going to point out to our listeners that a lot of people might have seen you on their TV screens because you were part of a show that ran for quite a long time called Thank God You're Here, an improvisation show. That's right. I was. So I've got a, a kind of an odd background in some ways because uh, I've been performing in improvised comedy and improvised theatre for quite a number of years, right back since uni. And and But when I was at uni, I was doing a law degree. So I was 
practiced for as a lawyer for six years after leaving uni, but um, all throughout was doing all this improv work. And then, yeah, it was back in, gosh, when was it? 2000 and, oh, you're testing me here, 2000 and something, 2007, 2008, maybe. It seems like but, a while uh, ago. I got this opportunity to go and perform on Thank God You're Here, and that was a ball. So I was part of the ensemble cast of that for the four seasons it ran. Wow. It's, when I watch shows like that, I always think that it must be the hardest thing in the world to think so quickly on your feet, to be funny and entertaining and on point. I always imagine that the people who are able to do that, and I'm not crawling to you here, must be pretty switched on characters. Well, I used to really admire the – like there were the – the celebrity guests who were invited on and they were plunked into these scenarios and the the stage was whipped out in front of hundreds of people who were baying for blood and cameras on them and that took a lot of, you know, a lot of really calm thinking on their part. But I think improv generally is just a, it's a wonderful skill for people to have because, listen, I mean, we're all improv all of the time and there's so much that you learn from it. And, I, look, I draw on in that I do now too. So in that situation, mate, you say there's a live audience baying for blood. Are they there kind of hoping you stuff up royal because there's nowhere to hide in that situation? No, look, I think, to be fair, I think most improv audiences are really, they're hanging onto the edges of their seats going on the ride with you. Mm. They're just, you know, so often audiences are thinking, geez, how are they doing this? And they're just sitting there thinking, what would I say? And in fact, one of the really interesting things is with improv and we're trained as improvisers to do this and to sort of train yourself in this from early on when you start performing is to actually do what the audience expects, to give them what they want rather than to try to be too clever. Because, in fact, the audience is kind of sitting there half improvising along with you and they're thinking, gee, you know, what would I say if I were in that situation? And then if you say it or one of the performers says it, they go, yeah, that's exactly uh, it. That's the perfect line. And they get so excited. That's really that's a really interesting point. Makes complete sense. So. You were a commercial lawyer and you were on the stage and doing your improvisation as you were training to be a lawyer and, and afterwards. So so who are you, Simon Dowling? Are you an actor at heart? Are you a, an artist masquerading during the day as a private sector man or are you a private sector man who does a bit of stage on the side? Oh, man, you didn't tell me that this was therapy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I am definitely an actor at heart in the sense that I like to engage with people and to connect with people. And I think actors fundamentally are in the business of doing that in terms of their performance. You know, do you connect with an audience? Do you delight an audience? Do you please an audience? And that's definitely part of my soul and my makeup. It's in my DNA. And But it then I've never worked really as a professional actor or pursued that as a career, I should say, other than my stint in Thank God You're Here. But all of my improv work was kind of evenings, weekends, Sunday nights and so forth. The career I've always pursued has been, well, first in commercial law, and then subsequently to that, I made a shift over into the world of training, coaching, development. And, you know, in that context, again, it's very much about connecting with audiences, helping to take them along the ride. And I think that that's that sort of actor's mindset continues to play out. It's a it's a funny kind of link, and I haven't really talked through it before. Making me think about it. There you go. That's my job, mate. I'm glad I've made you think about one question because I suspect a lot of the questions I ask you will be really easy for you to answer because you've written a whole book on what we're going to talk about. Hey, one of the things I read toward the end of your book, I think, was one of the principles of being an actor on stage is that you must work to make the other actors look good. 
Because if you don't do that, you actually make yourself look really bad by being selfish. And you made a link to that in terms of getting the buy-in or generating the buy-in of the people you work with. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, totally. I'm a huge fan of this. It's one of my favorite improvisation philosophies, make your partner look good. I reckon, you know, my passion and my thing is really around collaboration and how to how to make collaboration happen. And if you ask me an improv troupe, so a performer of improvisers, like sometimes you'd rock up to a show and you'd jump up on stage, perhaps with people you haven't even performed with before. Yeah. And you're creating stories, scenes, sometimes musicals, poems on the spot in front of a paying audience. I mean, that to me is the epitome of fast collaboration, teamwork, ensemble work. Yeah. But for that to work, and because it doesn't always work, but for it to work, you know that there are some fundamental rules that improvisers have to play by. Otherwise, it just breaks. And the performers that break the rules are the performers people don't usually want to perform with too much. And one of those key rules is make your partner look good. So when we step out on stage in front of an audience, one promise I will always make to you is that whatever you do on stage, I will make you look good as an improviser. And that means I will honor everything you bring to the stage. I'll listen. I will accept it. I will build it into the scene and I won't just steamroll you, ignore you, block you, whatever it might be. And gee, I love that because it just cuts through to so much of what we do. It seems when I read your history as if there are real paradox or, or unrelated pursuits, but when you talk it through, there's a real tangible link between the acting and the improvisation and the work you do in leadership and collaboration. I can see that link now. It's, it's, it's rather obvious. And you know what? It's, you know, it's interesting even sitting here talking to you about it. It was really in writing this book that I really explored those connections fully for the first time. Yeah. I think up until that point, I kind of knew there were connection points, but it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, probably, when I say not that long ago, maybe eight years ago, when I was working already in the space of, I was co- at the time I was coaching people in conflict management and negotiation. And at that point, I was almost trying to hide the fact that I had this improv and acting background because right. I thought perhaps perhaps it had nothing to do with what I did and in fact might undermine my and credibility. Discredit you, right. Yeah. And so- you go from that to now when I'm sitting, you know, writing this book and really understanding the connections between the two. And now when I teach people the art of buy-in, influence, working with others, collaboration, there's a good part of the stuff I teach. The workshops include improv principles and sometimes games and exercises to help people see those. Well, it's a fabulous skill, mate. Something that I admire greatly. I watch that show occasionally. I probably saw you on there, almost no doubt. And I, as I said earlier, I, I watched it thinking, my goodness, these are talented people. There is no way in the world I could do what they do. So I really admire that, mate. But let's move on a little more directly to the work that you covered in the book and the, the really important principles you covered in the book. It's all about, as we say, generating buy-in for your ideas, the idea of decree versus win me. And it, it occurred to me as I read through the tenets at the heart of your message And I thought that it described, among other things, the difference between management and leadership. Management for me is all about making sure and ensuring people are doing the right stuff and that the right things happen. Mm. And often management is associated with the position or the role you're in. You're given the title of management, you're given the authority that comes along with that. And whether you 
kind of wield that authority in a heavy-handed way or a light-handed way. People kind of just get you the, that you're the manager and you, you're calling the shots and we follow the Pied Piper. But the old chart says you're a, management, a manager, doesn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, there's an implicit kind of deal here that you pay me, I'll do my job, and if I don't do my job, well, there might be consequences. And heaps of organisations, well, industries historically have grown up through that model of management and there's plenty that still work that way and probably always will. There is a place for chain of command. But I think at the same time, when we think of leadership, leadership really is something that classically comes without needing authority. It's really about who you are, what you stand for, and whether people are going to come along the ride. And as you think to do with decree, that's all about the capacity to build followership, to create buy-in and to move to a world of win-me. It seemed really obvious to me, but you didn't ever explicitly spell it out in the book. Is that because it was just so obvious or have I stumbled across a really smart link here? (laughs) No, you're right. When I wrote this book, I was really conscious of not making it about a management book or a management alternative book. I wanted it to appeal to a much broader audience than that. So I do make lots of reference to leadership and the concept of the leader that you are, but it's very much in a small L leadership way. It's, you know, do you choose to create create a group of people who are prepared to come along with you on an idea? And to me, that's the ultimate form of leadership because it's got nothing to do with your role, everything to do with your capacity to, to win that kind of uh, engagement and commitment. It very much is about that difference between someone who leans on the power of the org chart, their ability, the, the authority the organization has given them to tell people what to do and why they're going to do it, up against the person who decides that they must buy in the support, enroll the support of the people around them. And you kick the book off by encouraging your readers to choose the power of buy-in. And it really is a conscious choice. It has to be a deliberate decision to lift your own standards and think not about being the messenger or the giver of instructions, but to think about being someone who seeks to engage the people around them to enroll their support. I love the way that you kicked it off with that kind of thought, because it really has to be a conscious choice, doesn't it? And I make that choice every day, or I'm faced with that yeah. choice every day. I've got two young kids. I've got a 10-year-old and a five-year-old. And every conversation I have with them, particularly if it's got to do with something like, you know, tidying up your room, and I use that example in the book, or whether it's got something to do with, you know, whether they're going to be able to have another lolly or not, or what they're going to do in terms of, um, you know, how they're going to spend their afternoon and whether I play with them or whether they're going to entertain themselves. All of those conversations, you're constantly facing this choice of how much do you bring into this of the whole parental authority bit Mm. versus I'm going to create agreement between us and commitment or buy-in to a, a decision or a way forward because you want to, not because you have to. And I find that tension fascinating. I reckon most of us have experienced it as kids, if not as parents, ourselves. And I think, you know, that's where it starts for me. That experience is every day, all the time. I've got staff and an experience every day, all the time. Do I tell them to do something because I'm the boss or do I suggest and then try and get them to buy into something? And I know there's a difference, not just in the process of doing that, there's a difference in the and the whole experience of it, but also the result that you get in return. So it is a choice that we have to make. We've got to be conscious about it, but it's not a one-off choice. It's something that we've got to continually choose to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, and, and you know, I suppose if I spend some time trying to create a genuine sense of buy-in, like 
say for example, I've got a team and I'm suggesting to them that I want to, I'd love to see us change the way that we resource a particular project and I get them to buy into an idea and we have conversations about that. And finally, everyone throws their hands up and says, yeah, no, look, this is good. Let's do it. Okay, absolutely. I'm on board. And I say, great, let's make it happen. And then a day later, I'm in a conversation with my own boss or an owner of the business. And I feel a kind of a tension around something that they're trying to achieve. And in order to please them or to expedite things, I just now make my own call and my own decision on a slight tweak to what I was discussing with the team yesterday. And I just let everyone know, oh, you know, following on from yesterday, here's a thought I've had, here's what we're going to do going forward. I've chatted with the boss. I've just undone all that work from yesterday, not just the outcome of it, but my reputation. I think there's plenty of people who say consultation, listening, et cetera, is often just window dressing. So it takes a lot of effort. We've got to continually remind ourselves of it. Then convince me, Simon, why should I choose it? If it's much easier for me to lean on the power that the org chart gives me, the power that I've got to wield to make decisions and give directions, and work will probably get done, why should I go this extra effort to generate the support of the people, the real support of the people around me and get their buy-in rather than just telling them? Well, and that's a good question because if in any context you can't see the benefit of it, you're probably just not going to do it. So I, you know, I always point to a few things. I think one is when you get people saying yes to something because they want to, as opposed to because they have to, I think you do more than just get people working on a project. They're now working with you on that project, which means they become people who bring to the table their kind of discretionary effort, their creative thinking, if they're committed to the outcome of this project and this project hits some kind of barrier or, you know, obstacle, these are people who are going to say, well, you know, we really wanted to see this happen. We've got to pull out all stops to find a way to make it happen. And now they're drawing from something within them. Yeah an energy within them, an initiative within them. And that is worth gold. We talk a lot about in organizations, how do you tap motivation? How do you tap discretionary effort? Well, I think this sits at the very core of that. If you want to be able to make stuff happen without having to stand there cracking a whip or dangling ever juicier carrots to precipitate action, then you need to be able to generate this kind of buy-in. And then what's really cool is I think if you can get this right, you create leaders. So you create people who become advocates of your ideas or they become a champion of your idea. And to me, that's the best definition of leadership is when at a certain point you can actually sit back, you know, pull out a deck chair, mix yourself up a pina colada. Look at them. They don't need me at all anymore. And I reckon that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That is being an awesome leader, isn't it? And as some people will say that ultimately the responsibility of all leaders is to create the next generation of leaders. So I like that answer. And at the heart of your answer was to create buy-in, you're getting people to give more than just the instructions you give them. They're giving part of themselves because they believe in it. They're bringing their own energy, their own thoughts and their own emotions to it as well. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. I bet in your time as a coach and a consultant and a trainer, Simon, you've come across people who think they conduct themselves as a leader by generating buy-in with the people around them, but they don't. How do you help people to realize the extent to which they do or don't 
really engage those around them as opposed to direct those around them? Wow, that's uh, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I think that piece of self-awareness, I mean, you do get people who I definitely have worked with. It wasn't that long ago, a couple of months ago, I was working with a leader who was very much of the view who said, you know, I've got this buy-in thing sorted. Um, and <laughs> Is that it was a red flag clear. straight away? Yeah, that's usually a red flag. <laughs> it's kind of like someone saying, I don't create conflict. Um, well, I'm really humble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and But it was pretty clear from working with his team, which I'd already done, that um, that was not the case. So, you know, to create awareness around that, I think, you know, the best way I think is to collect some data through kind of um, 360 degree feedback is often a really good start or some sort of data that helps people to hear and see that they are not creating the levels of either engagement or enthusiasm or inspiration that they might think. And there's a few different tools that, you know, occasionally lean on that help with that. So I think that can be a really helpful start. But another piece that is that is really critical, and the data, you know, the data I just referred to is just an extra piece of evidence to then bring into a good coaching conversation. The next piece is really to help people see the two choices and see the difference. So to really be able to sit down with a leader and talk about, let's talk about a time when either you or you've been in a situation where a decision's been made and it's essentially been made based on decree and authority. And then let's talk about a situation where you feel like a leader has done a wonderful job of really bringing you on board and getting you enthused about the idea and committing to it and bringing your head and your heart as well as your arms and your legs to the table. And what was the difference like? What did it feel like? What did you notice? You know, what were the choices that were made? How did it happen? And then kind of getting them to look through those examples and project it into their own world and say, and when are you at each of those? Because I reckon we're all both at different times. We don't perfectly both. Yeah. Sorry, we're not perfectly one or perfectly the other. So helping people see that it's it's not one or the other. It's actually a choice that we are making all the time. A question I was going to ask later, but it's probably the right time now is, can you overdo the buy-in thing? Can you be a leader that's so determined to win the support of those around you that you forget that the org chart actually gives you some authority and therefore some accountability? Totally. I've been that leader. Have you? I, um, yeah. So this, it's a really um, challenging piece for me, that thing of getting that balance right. I mean, I've been that leader who has got feedback from the team that says, we love the fact, Simon, that you consult. We love that you ask us questions. We love that you want our input and our views on things. What we would love more of is if you just now made a decision. <laughs> I knew that's where it was headed. And I reckon a lot of leaders either relate to that challenge or they're scared of being that leader who fails to make the decisions and so goes in the other direction. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a bit of a spectrum here and it's not an easy one to get the balance perfectly right. So, yeah, I think the art of buy-in is to know how to balance the need to get a decision made and to get action happening and to understand the constraints within which that needs to happen, but then to act early and to build into your process of making a decision or getting an idea loaded, build into that process the opportunity for people to have a voice in it early and to be part of it, but to also know where your your real deadlines, not your fake ones are, your real deadlines and deliverable points have to be. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to give us a bit of a lift list, some takeaways for our listeners so they can think about what the principles are to someone who's fantastic at generating buy-in and some of the ways that they can work on those. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask you one more question. If I'm a leader and 
I know that I'm aware of it sometimes, but I also know that sometimes I just get busy and uh, I probably don't put as much thought into the way I manage those around me as I possibly could. How can I do a little bit of an informal stock take? What can I notice or observe in the people around me that will give me an insight into what they really think of me and the way that that I engage them? <laughs> well, a great place to start would be the place that I often sit, and that is in a meeting, being run by a leader, and just observe the people around them. And I think a lot of leaders are obsessed a little bit with the uh, with making their presentation or presenting their ideas or their PowerPoint, as is so often the case. Mm. I think I probably get a pretty good indication if you simply look around a room and read the mood of the room and where people's eyes are. So, you know, people looking at the floor, fidgeting in their chairs, checking their phones, et cetera, et cetera. I think some leaders would say, oh, well, look, that's just unfortunately the way our workplaces seem to work. And I think, oh, you know, that's a bit of a cop-out, that response. I suspect there's probably something to do with the way you have or haven't engaged your audience. And that's another way to test is how much does your audience or team or stakeholder group, how much do they actually talk in any interaction, whether it's face-to-face talk, over the phone, over a video link, or whether it's via email communicate. But are you getting enough input and response from them? And I think that's a pretty basic, critical measure And I say basic, basic doesn't mean it's done well consistently, far from it. I kind of see that out of whack all the time. So if I'm a leader and I start paying attention to my team in meetings and conversations, and I notice that they're rather mute, they haven't got a lot to say, that's a pretty good sign that they're used to not having to give much input because I'm just going to go ahead and make the decisions. Yeah, that's right. So, and you know, you go the next level and go, well, why are they mute? Is it because they've spoken before and they've got their head bitten off and so, Mm. or or they were ignored and so they've been, they've learned that, you know, it's better to just pull your head in. And then when a new team member comes in all kind of sparkly eyed and enthusiastic and starts putting their hands up and everyone else just looks at them and says, (laughs) you'll learn. Oh, they'll learn. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, in your role working with leaders, sitting in meetings and being their eyes, you must have seen some pretty juicy situations in your times. Tell us a gory story. Go on. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I have. I mean, gory. I suppose you could describe it as gory. In fact, I had one leader who had prepared a huge PowerPoint on the latest strategy that they were going to propose for the business and roll out. And they'd worked on it with their senior leadership team. And by senior leadership team, I meant four people. And they were sitting there in a room and uh, they had their team of middle managers in front of them. So they're probably about you know 35 people in the room. And they were sitting there with their PowerPoint up on the screen, talking it through. And you could literally hear people clearing their throats. You could hear the discomfort in the room. It didn't help that the room was quite stuffy, which never works well. And one of the folks in the room kind of stuck their hand up at one point and said, I'd just be really interested to ask you, you know, are you planning to put extra resources into this strategy? And you could see the question was loaded with this statement of, uh, Good luck if you want to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. History there. And yeah, and then see the ripple effect. It's kind of like watching the Mexican wave unfold at the footy ground. You know, the, everyone else starts to think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're nodding in kind of enthusiastic agreement. It's the first time anyone's actually sparked up in the room. And this poor leader who, you know, obviously was desperate to control the conversation, which is always a dangerous thing, by the way. We can come back to that later desperate to control the situation, kind of puts his hands up and says, well, look, you know, resourcing is really not on the table for discussion right now. It's not the topic of this. We're more interested in what our strategy is. So 
if you can hold on to that. And we'll might be able to discuss that another time. And that moment of shutdown, it could have all happened in slow motion because it literally shut down the entire audience. Arms got crossed. People went into defensive language. You could see eyes rolling at each other. And I just wanted to stand up and say, I think we could probably just stop this whole thing now because so, nothing cause more is going to happen. Anything that was said beyond that point was wasted energy. Absolutely. So, you know, a great example of trying to present at your audience, but the whole point of this presentation was to engage the audience, not to simply stand on a pulpit and issue a command. And unfortunately, it failed miserably. So if that was true, if if this leader was presenting a strategy and there was no more resourcing that would go into it, if that was just a fact of the business and the, the environment they were in, what would have been a better way to handle that situation? Look, if I were in that situation, I would have, and it's funny, I had this because I had this conversation pretty much straight after the meeting. I would have acknowledged that question and treated it as a gift. This is another improv principle, actually. Treat everything you get as a gift, not because everything is what you ordered or what you put on your wish list, <laughs> but if you treat it as a gift, both in your demeanor, your facial expression, your body language, but more importantly, in the way you listen to it and the way you bring it into the conversation. I think more than anything, that's what people want. So if he had instead at that point said, listen, I'm really, really interested to hear you raise that. Tell me a little bit more about where that question comes from. Like, what are you thinking about? Or, you know, perhaps even leading, saying, look, I imagine you're asking that question because you're thinking to yourself, how on earth are we going to achieve all this given the current constraints on resources? Would that be fair? And to see what then happens, so to actually kind of connect with your audience and to play the game that they're trying to play with you rather than to shut them down, I think that would have been a, a great start. That's an awesome piece of advice to connect with your audience. Something that came up during your book that I think we'll get to in a few minutes when we talk about these principles and behaviors of great buy-iners was all around getting that thinking about the kind of vibe that you're giving off as an individual. And it reminded me of something that another guest I'd had on the show way back in episode four, I had a guy called Boo Holmes on the show who gave us a masterclass in communication. And he said something mm. that sticks with me more than a year later. I think of it most days is that in any situation, you get back what you give. If you give enthusiasm, that's what you'll get back. If you give openness and honesty, that's what you'll get back. If you give shutdown and uh, strangled communication, then that's what you'll get back. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, again, you know, I'll bring out the improviser in me. We say, you know, whatever is happening on stage, sell it. Look like you're loving it. Yeah. Look like you're enjoying it. Because if you look awkward, your audience will feel awkward. If you look embarrassed, the audience will feel embarrassed and piteous for you. You just don't want that and they don't want that. So if you can kind of project the right mood and also give the right energy, you'll end up getting it back. It may take a few beats, but you will. I believe that. That's, that's great advice. All right. Let's get down and dirty with it now, Simon. Let's give our listeners a well, lesson down and dirty. Yes, as, as much as we can on, on a leadership podcast, I guess. Let's give our listeners some real tangible lessons they can take away and remember tomorrow and the next day when they're at work and they're thinking about these concepts. Tell us about those core principles and behaviors that you see in people who are awesome at generating buy-in? What's at the core of it? What are their habits? Oh, okay. So the core stuff, the juicy stuff, the stuff that sits at the heart. Listen, I couldn't answer that question without starting with my first one, which is it's not a behavioral piece. It's, it is an attitude and a mindset piece. I reckon the most important thing is around, you know, if you're going in for a buy-in 
any attempt to build people's buy-in, you've got to start with a whole attitude of what's possible. It's what I describe as what's possible, and it's a stance. The stance of what's possible is kind of like this curiosity and this genuine openness to what other people thinking, to what their concerns might be, to what's going to be valuable and beneficial for them. But it's also curiosity about you know what their perspectives on it might be that might contribute back into your idea. And I think this kind of mindset, this what's possible attitude is what really distinguishes someone from, or sorry, I should say distinguishes a bunch from a selling approach. I think that's, you know, that's where I would always start. So, so that's the step- idea. Is, is it almost like a bit of social dreaming? As the leader or the person with the idea, you lay the platform and say, let's think about this together and really dream about what is what we can all imagine in this space. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. I love that. Um, <laughs> you can use that, mate. It, you know, it, it is a let's imagine piece. Yeah, I'm just like, you've, you've sparked my imagination. Um, <laughs> because it's, you know, I kind of think of the leader who's, you know, who wants to stand on the on the mountain and make declarative statements to the world. And it's kind of like, well, you almost sound like you think you got it all sorted. Yeah. You almost sound like you've got all the answers. Well, why don't you just go off and do it? Whereas most teams, particularly teams with people who are, you know, in any way creatively disposed or have great ideas, they want to be part of it. So that leader's just not going to get very far in that environment. All right. Awesome. Number one, the, the what's possible clause. I like it. What's next? Yeah. So I think the next one is you've just got to be someone that people will listen to. You know, I'm a big you believer in You make that in the, sound so easy. Oh, it is, isn't it? You know, just leave it at that, really. <laughs> this is something, this could be a life's work, really. But to be someone people will listen to, because I'm a big believer in this thing that people buy people first. Like, you know, when I think of different folks in my world, you know, the ones that just have a certain level of empathy and humility and conviction and concern, et cetera. They're the people that I want to follow and they're the ones that I want to listen to. So they kind of have me at hello, those folks. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. It's so hard to do though. That's, I mean, that, that is absolutely belongs on our list here, but geez, that's a, that's a big one. You can spend your life searching or seeking to be that type of person. Yeah, totally. And so to keep it really simple, I often say that when I'm coaching people, I say, look, let's start with a really simple question. You know, Pick some people in your life that you feel really, I suppose, attracted to in terms mm. of their capacity to build your buy-in and get your followership. And then give me the words that you would use to describe that person. Like, what is it about them that they get right? And kind of inspire yourself thinking in that way. And then I sort of turn the tables and say, well, what about you? What are the words that you would really want others to see in you? And we could get even more specific. Like I could say, okay, you've got someone in your team right now or a colleague or you know, someone at your level in the organization you're trying to connect with, what are the two or three words you really want them to see in you? And I'll tell you what, when I do that with people, they often just struggle a little bit to come up with those words because they haven't thought about it before. And here's my big thing is that, you know, I reckon to be someone others will listen to starts not with kind of a magic wand, but actually just with being really intentional in your relationships and spending enough time to think about what do I want them to see and experience in me that is likely to help here. And then to just focus on that and to work on getting that bit right, if nothing else. You're right. That's a great way to creep up on it, isn't it? To actually think of adjectives that describe the people you, as you say, are attracted to. I really like that concept of when you meet someone 
are they going to remember you? If you've met someone for 20 minutes in a year's time, will they remember who you are? Did you make an impression on them that was worth mm. remembering? I, I really, and I really like your point as well. That's great advice. All right. So two things, just that really easy thing of being someone that people want to listen to and the idea of what's possible. What else, Simon, they're gold. Yeah, right. So where would I go next? I think I'd go next to, you have to be a master of setting the right mood. You've got to be someone who gets just that people don't buy in based on logic. They don't buy in based on spreadsheets alone. They don't buy in based on graphs and numbers and data and PowerPoint. They definitely don't buy in based on PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) But but yet we try. Yet we try, we persist. Uh, (laughs) I think those things might help you a little bit, but you know, there's the old kind of notion that in fact, all sales decisions are just emotional decisions backed up with logic. Yeah. And I definitely learned that. I remember when I was sitting bottle feeding our young kid when he was a little bubba and, um, you know, the late night ads came on for the infomercials for, it was a steam mop. Yes. And I found myself dialing this number and buying this steam mop, you know, the, the emotion of the situation had completely <laughs> overcome me. You were nesting. And then the next morning... <laughs> the next morning when my wife said to me, what the hell are you doing buying a steam mop from an infomercial? I had every logical explanation and answer as to why it was a good idea. You know, the testimonials, the the percentage of bacteria in our house that it was going to kill, et cetera, et cetera. I could recite them, but none of those were actually the reason I bought the thing. It was a much more emotionally driven decision at the time. When it comes to mood, it's about knowing what it means to set set the scene and make people feel like your idea is a good one and to feel like the problem that you're trying to solve is a real one or to feel like the opportunity is a real one at a level of heart, not just head. Creating the right mood is an art all in itself, but I guess you could start by just avoiding the wrong mood. You told a terrific story in your book about someone who had been working on a a terrific strategy for months. They knew it was the right one but they chose to present it to the big boss a couple of days after he sent out a decree to just work on the things they're good at because their numbers hadn't been good that year. But because he had invested so much in this presentation, he kind of ignored what was a pretty obvious message that set the tone and just plowed on and gave his presentation anyway. And of course, it fell flat on its face because the mood was wrong. Yeah. You know, the sporting world has a great expression. They talk about your ability to read the play. Mm. And I love that concept because, you know, in the sporting world, the players who read the play kind of, they go on, they know their ball skills, but they just can see what's going on around them and they adjust their game accordingly. I think it's absolutely the same in the context of building buy-in. You've got to be good at kind of reading what's happening around you and adjusting. And the mood piece is a classic example of that. You know, if you've just walked in to a presentation where some dire results have been presented and you can see that there's been some sort of discussion or tough discussions in the room, you've got to think twice about just sort of opening your presentation the way you normally would, or perhaps even whether you should be opening it at all right now. Maybe today's not the day. Hey, you know, you just reminded me of another great story you told in your book about you. You knew you were going to deliver a, a pitch about a leadership program And the PA on the way in gave you word that no one who was supposed to be in the meeting was going. No one wanted to be part of a leadership program. So instead of going in and plowing on with your pitch, you just closed your computer and just had a conversation with them. What's going on? What do you guys really want? 
Totally. You know, you asked me earlier, you know, is the audience sitting there baying for blood in the improv world? Well, they might not be in an improv world, but sometimes in a business world, it feels like they are. Yeah. And you could just sense that. And I think this is where, you know, that story for me is a great reminder to myself. And it's why I drew on it for a lesson to say, do not try and control conversations where it is clear that the other people in the conversation have stuff going on or they're just not quite sure how to be part of your conversation, they're the times when it pays to stop. And there was a very symbolic moment for me there where, as you said, I just literally closed my computer because they're all expecting me, you know, a data projector set up. They're expecting me to present my pitch, just close it, sit back and go, so why are we here? What do you want? And the, the next beat in that story actually was actually being able to sit with what probably felt like 10 minutes of silence, but was probably only... 20, 25 seconds of silence, but it was enough to give them the ability to think through the question and for someone eventually to say, yeah, good question. Why are we here? And that started the real conversation. So you've got to kind of, I use this expression, you've got to yield in order to wield. If you want to have power in these conversations, you actually have to let go of power. And there's a paradox for you. One of the things that you made me think about when you were talking about that in the book was, and, and just since we've been talking now, you and I are quite lucky. I'm, I'm assuming you're a bit more like me. I have no problem standing up in front of a group talking. That's something I actually quite enjoy doing. It's one of my core skills. But for so many people we work with, it's actually a really big deal to get up in front of a group. So their ability to think on their feet and change plans in that moment is really limited because they feel like they're on stage anyway. It's a really high stress environment for them to start with. So the idea of shutting their computer and throwing away their palm cards is a, unimaginable almost. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, you know, they're the, what do you do in that situation? I, I, you know, I've learned that as a skill. I'm an introvert and I was a very shy kid who learnt the art of performing. And I think that's where, that's where, to go back to one of your earlier questions, the actor in me kicks in almost always, but it's not to act or create a false character. It's actually to learn just presenting or speaking to an audience. I think for most people, it pays to think about how do I develop that skill? Like, is it through coaching? Is it through practice? Is it through doing a couple of great presentation skills courses and more than anything, just getting up on my feet and feeling stupid and ridiculous for the first 15 times until I start to feel more comfortable? But it's actually that challenge of pushing through the awkward phase And that can take a little while until you learn the skills and you start to also realize that doing this well doesn't mean you have to be able to stand on a stage behind a lectern in front of hundreds of people. You've just got to find what part of you is worth amplifying and what part of you is the thing that people really enjoy and see is you and be a low-key, humble, authentic communicator, not a powwow, rah-rah presenter. I don't want to get those two things confused. Hey, I really like that. The part of you that's worth amplifying. That's a nugget of gold, Simon. That will be a tweet. I have to tell you that I've already decided that's going to be a tweet. All right. So you've given us three now, mate. Is there one more? We'll round this off to an even number of four. We've talked about the what's possible. Be someone people want to listen to. Easy. And master picking the right mood. What's the last one that that thing that all good buy-in getters manage to do? Oh, look, I mean, there's, a, there's many that compete for this coveted fourth position, <laughs> but I reckon if there's one final one I want to focus on, 
it's one that people often don't think about, and that is being really good at creating action. You've got to be good at creating action. I would hate to think that anyone who talks and thinks about buy-in thinks it's all about conversation, telling stories, getting the right emotional state. I mean, all of those things are critical, absolutely. But organizations being organizations, people being people, the best intentions, the most willing and enthusiastic minds can still hit this place where they don't know how to take their commitment forward. The number of times I've you know, made commitments around, you know, I'm going to increase the number of kilometers I run or I'm going to go to the gym more often. The number of times I've broken that commitment, it's not from a lack of good intention. It's from a lack of just not being able to exercise the right level of self-discipline and willpower to make it happen. So I reckon to be really good at buy-in, you have to also be good at helping people take those critical first steps towards action. And then you have to be good at setting people up to stay the steady course. So creating the right kind of scaffolding and systems or processes or reminders or whatever it is that helps me stay a steady course for that first habit forming period till we build up a bit of momentum. And then, you know, beyond that, how do we create this as a sustainable change? So it's not enough to kind of drop the mic when everyone says, yeah, what a great idea and say, well, my work's done here. You've got to be able to to help people get there. You know, when I was practicing as a lawyer, I used to encounter this a lot. You know, you'd spend weeks, sometimes months negotiating complex commercial deals and agreements. And then, you know, the client or one of the parties would say, yeah, but what if the other party doesn't do what they've just agreed that they will do? And then, you know, some clever lawyer would say, oh, don't worry, we've got them stitched up. We'll be able to take them all the way to the cleaners. You'd have to think to yourself, seriously, I'm not quite sure that's why we've entered into this agreement. Yeah. 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 I think there was supposed to be some kind of action as a result of this. That's a really good last one, mate. And you're so right. There's that image of dropping the mic, walking off stage and thinking, yep, they're on board. It's uh, the next piece is absolutely vital, being good at turning it into action so that you can start to build that momentum. And that's a really good one. And now, listeners, if you want more of Simon's nuggets of wisdom, you're going to have to read the book because it really is a it really is a terrific book, mate. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I was reading it to oh, and from thanks, work. Mate. I felt like I went to work and became a, a different person for the day. I just hope I can sustain it. Well, I'll have to I'll let you know about that. Now, Simon, you're not <laughs> off the hook yet. I always finish my conversations with the same four questions so we can learn a little bit more about the inherent Simon Dowling. Are you ready to go? Yep, you're on. All right. Now Simon, tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Big party with lots of people you know or a quiet dinner with your closest friends? Quiet dinner with my closest friends. There's you, the introvert in me, You hey? already told us you were an introvert. You're, that's what this is, mate. It's a mini little MBTI going right here. All right, so here's the second one. <laughs> Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Caught daydreaming. Are you? I hate detail. <laughs> All Try right. writing a book when you hate detail. Yeah, I was, that's where my thoughts went when you said that. How did you go writing the book? Was it a real chore? I tell you, I learned some hacks very quickly thanks to a few different friends, but one was just downloading my thoughts into my iPhone and getting them transcribed and using that as the beginning of the detail. It was gold. And the other one I had was I, I brought in fairly early on in the piece a, an editor to help work with me on getting the detail expressed in the right way, which again was gold. It let me focus on the big picture, supplement your strengths. It's funny you say that, mate, about download, just speaking into your iPhone and getting it transcribed, because 
it comes across very much that way. Now that I've spoken to you for a little while, it's very consistent with the style of your book. It really is like you're talking. Oh, thank you. And, you know, for me, that was a really important part of this. I mean, you know, part of the challenge is when you're writing a book on buy-in, you sort of think to yourself, well, I've got to write this in a way that, you know, emulates some of the advice that I'm giving. Yeah. (laughs) So a bit of pressure on there. But the other one is I think, you know, that's a much more, if I think of the books that I read or more importantly, the books that I finish reading, they are the ones where I feel like, you know, the author is sitting there talking to me. Mm. and, And if I can, in some small way, capture that, then I'm a very happy author. All right. So you're a big picture man. You're not a details man. The penultimate question, I like to show off the fact that I know the, the meaning of that word. The penultimate question Good word. is, are you a slave to a rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Based on emotion. Geez, these are easy questions. Actually, no, no, sorry. I should qualify my answer. I've just... <laughs> you just dissed my questions. Que- I answer questions based on emotion. How <laughs> <laughs> dare you just... But I do have, I'm a bit of a uh, Jekyll and Hyde on this, I do have a very critical thinking mind that likes to kick in. So in much in the way I've just answered this question, I burst out with my emotional response and then, you know, I put the handbrakes on with my rational thought. So you, you react with emotion and then regret with rational thinking. Oh, I didn't <laughs> say that. <laughs> All right. Very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? I'm a planner, mate. Yeah, have it all worked out. Besides, you know, if you do it that way, you get the best deal and you get more points. No, it makes much more sense. (laughs) So you're not just a planner, you're like an evangelical planner. Well, I don't know. I'm, these questions are terrifying me because the, the um, contradictions in me are just pouring out. I think <laughs> I'm an improviser as well. You know, if you ask me to uh, run a program, I much prefer to just think a little bit about the direction of the day and then, um, and then play it out on the day. You're but somehow right. when it comes, That's a massive when it comes contradiction. To travel, it is. It is. This is therapy. No, but when it comes to travel, I definitely like to have it all planned out and know exactly where I'm going and my car booked. So- What's that about? What's that about? You're going to have to go and see someone about that. (laughs) I'll start with a glass of wine and see how far I get. Simon Dowling, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. I enjoyed it too. Thanks, David. And that was Simon Dowling. I really enjoyed chatting with Simon. He's a delightful fellow and oozes the energy and communication skills you'd expect from someone who began their career on the stage doing improv. I really enjoyed reading Simon's book as well. And if you liked what you heard today, I suspect you will too. Simon writes as he talks, engaging, entertaining and enlightening. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my chat with Simon on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or by emailing me directly, david at teams.guru. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook and Twitter. And I'll be back soon for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory of team and leadership development. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.